Volume Four, Chapter Twelve, Part B, of The Mysteries of Adolfo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe, Volume Four, Chapter Twelve, Part B. At a little distance was discovered a rude and dangerous passage formed by an enormous pine which, thrown across the chasm, united the opposite precipices, and which had been felled probably by the hunter to facilitate his chase of the izzard or the wolf. The whole party, the guides excepted, shuddered at the prospect of crossing this alpine bridge, whose sides afforded no kind of defence, and from which to fall was to die. The guides, however, prepared to lead over the mules, while Blanche stood trembling on the brink and listening to the roar of the waters, which was seen descending from rocks above, overhung with lofty pines, and thence precipitating themselves into the deep abyss, where their white surges gleamed faintly in the moonlight. The poor animals proceeded over this perilous bridge with instinctive caution, neither frightened by the noise of the cataract, or deceived by the gloom which the impending foliage threw athwart their way. It was now that the solitary torch, which had been hitherto of little service, was found to be an inestimable treasure, and Blanche, terrified, shrinking, but endeavouring to recollect all her firmness and presence of mind, preceded by her lover and supported by her father, followed the red gleam of the torch in safety to the opposite cliff. As they went on, the heights contracted and formed a narrow pass, at the bottom of which the torrent they had just crossed was heard to thunder. But they were again cheered by the bark of a dog, keeping watch, perhaps, over the flocks of the mountains, to protect them from the nightly descent of the wolves. The sound was much nearer than before, and, while they rejoiced in the hope of soon reaching a place of repose, a light was seen to glimmer at a distance. It appeared at a height considerably above the level of their path, and was lost and seen again, as if the waving branches of trees sometimes excluded and then admitted its rays. The guides hallooed with all their strength, but the sound of no human voice was heard in return, and, at length, as a more effectual means of making themselves known, they fired a pistol. But... While they listened in anxious expectation, the noise of the explosion was alone heard, echoing among the rocks, and it gradually sunk into silence, which no friendly hint of man disturbed. The light, however, that had been seen before, now became plainer, and, soon after, voices were heard indistinctly on the wind. But, upon the guides repeating the call, the voices suddenly ceased, and the light disappeared. The Lady Blanche was now almost sinking beneath the pressure of anxiety, fatigue, and apprehension, and the united efforts of the Count and Saint-Foy could scarcely support her spirits. As they continued to advance, an object was perceived on a point of rock above, which, the strong rays of the moon then falling on it, appeared to be a watch-tower. The Count, from its situation and some other circumstances, had little doubt that it was such, and believing that the light had proceeded from thence, he endeavoured to reanimate his daughter's spirits by the near prospect of shelter and repose, which, however rude the accommodation, a ruined watch-tower might afford. "'Numerous watch-towers have been erected among the Pyrenees,' said the Count, anxious only to call Blanche's attention from the subject of affairs, and the method by which they give intelligence of the approach of the enemy is, you know, by fires, kindled on the summits of these edifices. Signals have thus, sometimes, been communicated from post to post, along a frontier line of several hundred miles in length. Then, as occasion may require, the lurking armies emerge from their fortresses in the forests, and march forth to defend, perhaps, the entrance of some grand pass, where, planting themselves on the heights, they assail their astonished enemies, 
who wind along the glen below with fragments of the shattered cliff, and pour death and defeat upon them. The ancient forts and watchtowers overlooking the grand passes of the Pyrenees are carefully preserved, but some of those in inferior stations have been suffered to fall into decay, and are now frequently converted into the more peaceful habitation of the hunter, or the shepherd, who, after a day of toil, retires hither, and, with his faithful dogs, forgets, near a cheerful blaze, the labour of the chase, or the anxiety of collecting his wandering flocks, while he is sheltered from the nightly storm. "'But are they always thus peacefully inhabited?' said the Lady Blanche. "'No,' replied the Count. "'They are sometimes the asylum of French and Spanish smugglers, who cross the mountains with contraband goods from their respective countries, and the latter are particularly numerous, against whom strong parties with the King's troops are sometimes sent. But the desperate resolution of these adventurers, who, knowing that, if they are taken, they must expiate the breach of the law by the most cruel death, travel in large parties, well-armed, often dance the courage of the soldiers. The smugglers, who seek only safety, never engage when they can possibly avoid it. The military, also, who know that in these encounters danger is certain, and glory almost unattainable, are equally reluctant to fight. An engagement, therefore, very seldom happens, but, when it does, it never concludes till after the most desperate and bloody conflict. "'You are inattentive, Blanche,' added the Count. "'I have wearied you with a dull subject.' But see, yonder, in the moonlight, is the edifice we have been in search of, and we are fortunate to be so near it before the storm bursts. Blanche, looking up, perceived that they were at the foot of the cliff on whose summit the building stood, but no light now issued from it. The barking of the dog, too, had, for some time, ceased, and the guides began to doubt whether this was really the object of their search. From the distance at which they surveyed it, shown imperfectly by a cloudy moon, it appeared to be of more extent than a single watch-tower, but the difficulty was how to ascend the height, whose abrupt declivities seemed to afford no kind of pathway. While the guides carried forward the torch to examine the cliff, the Count, remaining with Blanche and saint at its foot, under the shadow of the woods, endeavoured again to beguile the time by conversation, but again anxiety abstracted the mind of Blanche, and he then consulted, apart with Saint-Foy, whether it would be advisable, should a path be found, to venture to an edifice which might possibly harbour banditti. They considered that their own party was not small, and that several of them were well armed, and, after enumerating the dangers to be incurred by passing the night in the open wild, exposed perhaps to the effects of a thunderstorm, there remained not a doubt that they ought to endeavour to obtain admittance to the edifice above, at any hazard respecting the inhabitants it might harbour. But the darkness and the dead silence that surrounded it appear to contradict the probability of its being inhabited at all. A shout from the guides aroused their attention, after which, in a few minutes, one of the Count's servants returned with intelligence that a path was found, and they immediately hastened to join the guides, when they all ascended a little winding way cut in the rock among thickets of dwarf wood, and, after much toil and some danger, reached the summit, where several ruined towers, surrounded by a massy wall, rose to their view partially illumined by the moonlight. The space around the building was silent, and apparently forsaken, but the Count was cautious. "'Step softly,' said he, in a low voice, while we reconnoitre the edifice. Having proceeded silently along for some paces, they stopped at a gate, whose portals were terrible even in ruins, and, after a moment's hesitation, passed on to the court of entrance, but paused again at the head of a terrace, which, branching from it, ran along the brow of a precipice. 
Over this rose the main body of the edifice, which was now seen to be not a watchtower, but one of those ancient fortresses that, from age and neglect, had fallen to decay. Many parts of it, however, appeared to be still entire. It was built of grey stone, in the heavy Saxon Gothic style, with enormous round towers, buttresses of proportionable strength, and the arch of the large gate, which seemed to open into the hall of the fabric, was round, as was that of a window above. The air of solemnity, which must so strongly have characterized the pile even in the days of its early strength, was now considerably heightened by its shattered battlements and half-demolished walls, and by the huge masses of ruin scattered in its wide area, now silent and grass-grown. In this court of entrance stood the gigantic remains of an oak that seemed to have flourished and decayed with the building, which it still appeared frowningly to protect by the few remaining branches, leafless and moss-grown, that crowned its trunk, and whose wide extent told how enormous the tree had been in a former age. This fortress was evidently once of great strength, and, from its situation on a point of rock, impending over a deep glen, had been of great power to annoy as well as to resist. The Count, therefore, as he stood surveying it, was somewhat surprised that it had been suffered, ancient as it was, to sink into ruins, and its present lonely and deserted air excited in his breast emotions of melancholy awe. While he indulged for a moment these emotions, he thought he heard a sound of remote voices steal upon the stillness, from within the building, the front of which he again surveyed with scrutinizing eyes, but yet no light was visible. He now determined to walk round the fort, to that remote part of it whence he thought the voices had arisen, that he might examine whether any light could be discerned there, before he ventured to knock at the gate. For this purpose he entered upon the terrace, where the remains of cannon were yet apparent in the thick walls, but he had not proceeded many paces, when his steps were suddenly arrested by the loud barking of a dog within, and which he fancied to be the same whose voice had been the means of bringing the travellers thither. It now appeared certain that the place was inhabited, and the Count returned to consult again with St. Foy, whether he should try to obtain admittance, for its wild aspect had somewhat shaken his former resolution. But, after a second consultation, he submitted to the considerations which before determined him, and which were strengthened by the discovery of the dog that guarded the fort, as well as by the stillness that pervaded it. He therefore ordered one of his servants to knock at the gate who was advancing to obey him, when a light appeared through the loophole of one of the towers, and the Count called loudly, but, receiving no answer, he went up to the gate himself, and struck upon it with an iron-pointed pole, which had assisted him to climb the steep. When the echoes had ceased that this blow had awakened, the renewed barking, and there were now more than one dog, was the only sound that was heard. The Count stepped back a few paces, to observe whether the light was in the tower, and, perceiving that it was gone, he returned to the portal, and had lifted the pole to strike again, when again he fancied he heard the murmur of voices within, and paused to listen. He was confirmed in the supposition, but they were too remote to be heard otherwise than in a murmur, and the Count now let the pole fall heavily upon the gate, when almost immediately a profound silence followed. It was apparent that the people within had heard the sound, and their caution in admitting strangers gave him a favourable opinion of them. "'They are either hunters or shepherds,' said he, "'who, like ourselves, have probably sought shelter from the night within these walls, and are fearful of admitting strangers, lest they should prove robbers. I will endeavour to remove their fears.' So saying, he called aloud, "'We are friends who ask shelter from the night.' In a few moments steps were heard within, which approached, 
and a voice then inquired, "'Who calls?' "'Friends,' repeated the Count. "'Open the gates, and you shall know more.' Strong bolts were now heard to be undrawn, and a man, armed with a hunting spear, appeared. "'What is it you want at this hour?' said he. The Count beckoned his attendants, and then answered that he wished to inquire the way to the nearest cabin. "'Are you so little acquainted with these mountains?' said the man, as not to know that there is none within several leagues. I cannot show you the way. You must seek it. There is a moon. Saying this, he was closing the gate, and the Count was turning away, half disappointed and half afraid, when another voice was heard from above, and, on looking up, he saw a light and a man's face at the grate of the portal. "'Stay, friend. You have lost your way?' said the voice. "'You are hunters, I suppose, like ourselves.' I will be with you presently. The voice ceased, and the light disappeared. Blanche had been alarmed by the appearance of the man who had opened the gate, and she now entreated her father to quit the place, but the Count had observed the hunter's spear, which he carried, and the words from the tower encouraged him to await the event. The gate was soon opened, and several men in hunter's habits, who had heard above what had passed below, appeared, and, having listened some time to the Count, told him he was welcome to rest there for the night. They then pressed him, with much curtsy, to enter, and to partake of such fare as they were about to sit down to. The Count, who had observed them attentively while they spoke, was cautious, and somewhat suspicious. But he was also wary, fearful of the approaching storm, and of encountering alpine heights in the obscurity of night. Being likewise somewhat confident in the strength and number of his attendants, he, after some further consideration, determined to accept the invitation." With this resolution he called his servants, who, advancing round the tower, behind which some of them had silently listened to this conference, followed their lord, the Lady Blanche and saint Foix, into the fortress. The strangers led them on to a large and rude hall, partially seen by a fire that blazed at its extremity, round which four men, in the hunter's dress, were seated, and on the hearth were several dogs stretched in sleep. In the middle of the hall stood a large table, and over the fire some part of an animal was boiling. As the Count approached, the men arose, and the dogs, half raising themselves, looked fiercely at the strangers, but, on hearing their master's voices, kept their postures on the hearth. Blanche looked round this gloomy and spacious hall, then at the men, and to her father, who, smiling cheerfully at her, addressed himself to the hunters. "'This is a hospitable hearth,' said he. "'The blaze of a fire is reviving after having wandered so long in these dreary wilds. "'Your dogs are tired.' "'What success have you had?' "'Such as we usually have,' replied one of the men, who had been seated in the hall. "'We kill our game with tolerable certainty.' "'These are fellow-hunters,' said one of the men who had brought the Count hither, "'that have lost their way, and I have told them there is room enough in the fort for us all.' "'Very true, very true,' replied his companion. "'What luck have you had in the chase, brothers? "'We have killed two izards, and that, you will say, is pretty well.' "'You mistake, friend,' said the Count. "'We are not hunters, but travellers. "'But if you will admit us to hunter's fare, "'we shall be well contented, and will repay your kindness.' "'Sit down, then, brother,' said one of the men. "'Jacques, lay more fuel on the fire. "'The kit will soon be ready. "'Bring a seat for the lady, too. "'Mademoiselle, will you taste our brandy? "'It is true Barcelona, and as bright as ever flowed from a keg.' Blanche timidly smiled, and was going to refuse, when her father prevented her by taking, with a good-humoured air, the glass offered to his daughter, and Monsieur saint who was seated next her, pressed her hand, and gave her an encouraging look. 
but her attention was engaged by a man who sat silently by the fire, observing saint foix with a steady and earnest eye. "'You lead a jolly life here,' said the Count. "'The life of a hunter is a pleasant and a healthy one, and the repose is sweet, which succeeds to your labour.' "'Yes,' replied one of his hosts. "'Our life is pleasant enough. We live here only during the summer and autumnal months. In winter the place is dreary, and the swollen torrents that descend from the heights put a stop to the chase.' "'Tis a life of liberty and enjoyment,' said the Count. "'I should like to pass a month in your way very well.' "'We find employment for our guns, too,' said the man who stood behind the Count. "'Here are plenty of birds, of delicious flavour, that feed upon the wild thyme and herbs that grow in the valleys. Now I think of it, there is a brace of birds hung up in the stone gallery. Go fetch them, Jacques. We'll have them dressed.' The Count now made inquiry concerning the method of pursuing the chase among the rocks and precipices of these romantic regions, and was listening to a curious detail when a horn was sounded at the gate. Blanche looked timidly at her father, who continued to converse on the subject of the chase, but whose countenance was somewhat expressive of anxiety, and who often turned his eyes towards that part of the hall nearest the gate. The horn sounded again, and a loud halloo succeeded. "'These are some of our companions, returned from their day's labour, said a man, going lazily from his seat towards the gate. And in a few minutes two men appeared, each with a gun over his shoulder, and pistols in his belt. "'What cheer, my lads, what cheer!' said they, as they approached. "'What luck!' returned their companions. "'Have you brought home your supper? You shall have none else.' "'Ah! Who the devil have you brought home?' said they in bad Spanish, on perceiving the Count's party. "'Are they from France or Spain? Where did you meet with them?' "'They met with us, and a merry meeting too,' replied his companion, aloud in good French. "'This chevalier and his party had lost their way and asked a night's lodging in the fort.' The others made no reply, but threw down a kind of knapsack, and drew forth several brace of birds. The bag sounded heavily as it fell to the ground, and the glitter of some bright metal within glanced on the eye of the Count, who now surveyed, with a more inquiring look, the man that held the knapsack. He was a tall, robust figure, of a hard countenance, and had short black hair, curling in his neck. Instead of the hunter's dress, he wore a faded military uniform. Sandals were laced on his broad legs, and a kind of short trousers hung from his waist. On his head he wore a leathern cap, somewhat resembling in shape an ancient Roman helmet, but the brows that scowled beneath it would have characterized those of the barbarians who conquered Rome rather than those of a Roman soldier. The Count, at length, turned away his eyes, and remained silent and thoughtful, till, again raising them, he perceived a figure standing in an obscure part of the hall, fixed in attentive gaze on Saint-Foix, who was conversing with Blanche, and did not observe this. But the Count, soon after, saw the same man looking over the shoulder of the soldier as attentively at himself. He withdrew his eye when that of the Count met it, who felt mistrust gathering fast upon his mind, but feared to betray it in his countenance and, forcing his features to assume a smile, addressed Blanche on some indifferent subject. When he again looked round, he perceived that the soldier and his companion were gone. End of Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part B